0: be preaching from an introduction sermon, um, even though we won't be coming back to 2 Timothy anytime time in the very near future, but um, we'll be reading and preaching from 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1 um, through 1 verses 1, and actually um, a little bit of a deviation from what I printed there through verse 8 instead of verse 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy and peace from God, the father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. As I remember you, Constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame, Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are here according to the promises of the life that is in Christ Jesus. And we are here now waiting on, anticipating, hoping in the power of the gospel as it is proclaimed and preached, and heard, may it impact and transform your people. We pray according to your steadfast promises, may may that be manifested in us this day. By the power of your Son and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. may be seated. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a situation where you felt like that the end of your life was imminent, but I would imagine that if you had that opportunity to know in advance that you would want to communicate to your family and friends and loved ones, imagine for yourself what would it be that you would write if you had the opportunity to communicate to your family and your loved ones if you were in a moment where you knew your death was imminent but you were not going to be able to be with your family and your loved ones? What would you say? What would you remind them of? What would you encourage them in? What would you charge them with in hope? Maybe what would it be that you might even repent of? and recall and ask even to make peace in some situations if you had left them in a time of lack of peace or conflict or disunity. The letter of Second Timothy is Paul's final letter. Final letter to Timothy, but final letter that we have even though it's not chronologically placed in the New Testament as his last letter. But this was his last letter, and it was particularly to Timothy. Now, we know at the end of this letter, there was a hope that he would get to see. Timothy because he asked Timothy to come and was giving him things to do from bringing parchment to write on and bringing his cloak and bringing additional people and to come and to be with him soon. As he says here, he longs to see Timothy so that he would also bring to him some joy and some hope. The whole tenor of this letter is a letter to get it to the point, to get it to what it might need to be said if it were the last communication that he would give to Timothy. But it is also his last communication that he would give to the church, the language, the Greek language, often when mentioned with you to these personal letters and also particularly to 2 Timothy, it is to be to you all. (laughs) In the good southern accent, I'm sure that you can imagine. This is for you all. And it is also for us. As Paul finishes his race and his work in ministry, he is wanting to communicate the most important things that he needs to say. And so it's important for us to to look at this, and it has a bit of a different tenor than the other letters that he gives, and it's a good, potent summarization of all the essential things that we would need to know for the encouragement of what God has done, for the bonding of love and unity, and for the provocation of continuing on in the furthering of the kingdom. I can remember a couple of occasions where this kind of faintly was on my mind. I've not really had a face-to-face situation with death that I felt like it was definitely certain that it was imminent, but one such occasion was when I got Bell's palsy, and that's why my face is distorted. At that particular moment when I got Bell's palsy, I was feeling things not operating on the left side of my face, And so I immediately thought that I was having a stroke and I was at home, so I didn't have to write a letter, but I I did gather the family together in the dining room and I said, something as weird is going on (laughs) and because I am losing control of the left side of my face. I may be having a stroke and it could be serious. I don't want to scare you all and I'm not ready to go to a place where I'm giving you my last will and testament. But I don't know how many of, I'm sure all of my family remembers that, that were alive at that time. It was a bit of a scary moment for me, and I wanted to encourage them. And I think we prayed together, and I encouraged them with words of my love and, and my faith. And I, we would, I didn't get too deep and far into it, because I didn't want to be overly dramatic. And thankfully, um, I, obviously, I did not die <laughs> and have not been raised again um, yet in the resurrection. I am... Um, God just gave me Bell's palsy and I had a miserable night of uh, vertigo and throwing up and um, God smacked me in the face and made me look funnier than I already looked for the rest of my life seemingly. The second time was not but just a couple weeks ago when um, we found out I found out that I was starting to experience um, the symptoms of COVID and being a the guy of the girth that I am and with the uh, blood pressure that I have, I'm on the higher scale of risk. And so I started thinking, um, maybe this could be dangerous for me. I had just talked to Marus the Saturday before that and he was encouraging me about the vaccination because of my high risk status and I've been trying to to hold out. And I was thinking maybe I should, maybe you know, even though I'm very much opposed to the forced mandates with great fervor um, opposed to that. Um, I don't want to be stupid, and maybe I should consider this. And then before I could really make a process of going and getting tested for antibodies, I ended up having it. But there was a moment, even though it was such a brief time of sickness, my wife questions whether I actually had it, (laughs) because she had such a horrible time of sickness. But when I was at the worst of my moment, I thought, this could be bad. And what should I say, or what should I do? And I started composing in my mind things that I might need to do. Maybe some of you have had those moments, um, maybe through times of hospitalization or times of having a wreck or um, who knows what those particular moments have been, but it, it, it sobers you to put the most important things first. Just a few weeks ago was the 20th anniversary of September 11th in Um, I recall what Todd Beamer had said on the phone to the lady that was there that received his call that was walking him through the whole process or he was telling them or reporting them what was going on as the terrorists were doing the things that they were doing on the plane. And I saw a formula here in Todd Beamer's statements that were very similar. The very same things that we see in Second Timothy or here. I'm going to read just a very snippet of what Todd said to um, the lady on the phone who happened to have the same name as his wife, Lisa. He said, tell her this, please. You have the same name as my wife, Lisa. We've been married for 10 years. She's pregnant with our third child. Tell her that I love her. I'll always love her. We have two boys, David, he's three, and Andrew, he's one. Tell them, tell them, tell them that their daddy loves them and that he is so proud of them. Our baby is due January 12th. I saw an ultrasound. It was great. We still don't know if it's a girl or boy. Lisa, I'll tell them. I promise time. And then from there, he read the, or he stated, by memory, of the Lord's Prayer in the 23rd Psalm. <laughs> well, that means you're coming to the baptism, Right. <laughs> Because you've got to take Nordike Road to get to the baptism. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you're going to be there, B. And then after he finished the 23rd Psalm, he said, God help me. Jesus help me. And then he clears his throat, and he says with a louder voice to the people that were around him, Are you guys ready? Let's roll. And then they rushed the cockpit, and they made the plane crash. And saved who knows how many people's lives in the process. This was very personal. It was personal in multiple tears, and I mean tears and sections toward his love for his wife, his love for his children, and his hope and adherence to God and his prayer and his plead that God would help him. Todd Beamer was a Uh, Christian, throughout his whole childhood, he was taught the truth. He was disciplined and taught in Christian studies from his childhood. And at this particular time, he was a Sunday school teacher and a youth director in the Alliance Church, the Missionary Alliance Church that he was a part of there in New Jersey. He was on his way to San Francisco for a business trip and was hoping to return on a red eye later that night. The things that we see here in this letter are very similar. That same kind of tone, he is wanting to reflect. Paul is reflecting on what God has done, just as Todd was reflecting on the life that he has had with his wife. He was wanting, he's wanting to communicate love, which Todd clearly wanted to communicate here, and a love for Timothy and a love for the ministry and the love for Jesus Christ, and to provoke and to encourage. As Todd was encouraging his sons, I am proud of you. We have that same sentiment and tone from Paul to Timothy in thanking God for the fruit that he has shown in Timothy's life to encourage Timothy. This letter is an encouragement for Timothy to press on because he knows there will be times of fear ahead. So there is reflection, there is encouragement, and there is prov- provocation in this whole letter, but it's wrapped up and summarized here in this introduction, which the theme is based upon promise, providence, and the power of God's progressive ministry of the gospel. This is what we would, should and hope that we would do. We would want to communicate to one another if we were writing letters to some people that we love, that we may remember something of our past and remember sweet times that God has allowed us to do things together and to communicate that, that love is very much alive to this day and very present and then to maybe give some provocation of encouragement For the future and a hope for the future, knowing that at this moment there will be times of fear and there will be times of despair and reasons to lose hope because of the things that are present in this age. We have Paul very commonly will introduce himself in his letters that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus and often will say, by the will of God or by the command of God, like he says in 1 Timothy 1. This one's the only one that has this unique statement, not that it's that distinctive from some other things that he says. If you go to to the introduction of Romans, he has a very long-winded introduction in Romans that kind of explains all of this. And here we're at the the last letter, and I think he's he's probably got the point now. This is according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. What is that promise of life that's in Christ Jesus? What do you think Paul is thinking about at this moment as he is looking at his life, which at this moment he is in prison? He is, this is a second letter to Timothy while being in prison, this is further along during his captivity. There in the letter to the Philippians, he actually in to indicates that he has a hopefulness that he will be released. But here, the hope of his release is pretty much gone. And his time of execution is near. You, as you read 2 Timothy, you see that he knows he's done. He's reflecting on that it is the end of his time in this ministry. And so when he thinks about the promise of life, he's thinking about the fullness of the gospel. If you go and look at the other introductions of his letter, he does articulate it more in a confessional type style of all the things that he hopes in in Jesus Christ. But he has also summarized it where it is to live as Christ and to die as gain. He is making this letter very clear that he is holding on very clearly holding on to the hope that the life of Christ is still his, even though his life is about to end. He, as in the other time in the first Timothy, he says to Timothy, my beloved child, he does the same thing with Titus. And he sees that he has been the one who has been a helpful encouragement in the faith that he has helped bring Timothy to faith and has helped shape Timothy and ministry. He sees this intimate connection with Timothy. He loves Timothy as a beloved child. Then all of the letters commonly in that introduction will say grace and peace from God. But here he adds the word, it's the only time it's in any of the letters, he adds the word mercy between grace and peace. If you look, Throughout the whole letter you will see that this is not only a personal letter to Timothy to encourage him and that he has seen God's work and God's love in Timothy's life and that he is confident and encouraged by the fruit that he has seen in Timothy's life and maturity but it's also very personal in pain because as you go through 2 Timothy you will see places where Timothy or excuse me where Paul reflects and recalls Those who have hurt him. Those who have left the ministry. Those who he also invested in with love and fervor for the ministry that have abandoned him. He is also showing not bitterness, but you can see in his letter that there is hurt even in this chapter. As he will articulate that those have left... There are those who have gone after the world. He even ends in chapter 4 that they've all left me. He has that very sentiment of feeling that we see with Elijah, even though it's clear in his letter that not everyone has left Paul. It is clear that even now he still has Timothy. And he even closes there at the end of Timothy by talking about all these people that are helping him in ministry and how thankful he is for them. It's not a reality that everyone has left him, but he feels like it at this moment that everyone has left him and that he is alone. It's a very personal, painful thing. But in that explanation, you see him say, and I think he has learned from his Savior, he has learned from who we're talking about in Acts right now, he is asking the Lord to be merciful to these that even hurt him. In chapter 4, after he says, they've all left me, he says, may the Lord grant them mercy. Or he says, do not hold it against them. More do not hold this hurt. Do not hold this dissension against them. He's looking at the life of Christ and the promise of life and the promise of forgiveness, knowing himself that he is the one at one time that heard those words from Stephen, just as we are now going through Acts, he heard Stephen say the exact same thing for his sake and the Lord grant him mercy. So he knows that the Lord's power is more powerful, his love is more loving than his own love could even be, and that there may be hope. And so right in the middle of this grace and peace introduction, he adds mercy because he is praying and thinking about the mercy of Jesus Christ given to him, and he is asking for that same mercy to be given to others. Even at the end of 2 Timothy, he asked that John Mark would be brought back and to help serve. John Mark was one who abandoned him in the ministry and had shown himself to be immature and unstable when Barnabas and Paul were about their first missionary journey, so much that that division and that dissension caused he and Barnabas. To have to separate ways and so he is now seeing a reconciliation time he's saying that john mark is now useful for him in ministry he is seeing that the lord has worked in the life of john mark he is thinking about the reconciling power of jesus christ as he is writing this letter and then he says i thank god whom i serve as did my ancestors most commentators will say that this is he is reflecting on the patriarchs. He is going back into the Old Testament. And I'm sure that that is where it is rooted. But I, it may have been more personal than that. There may have been people that, even though we don't know the immediate people in his life, other than maybe Gamaliel, which we have church tradition saying that maybe even Gamaliel eventually came to the Lord, who was an instructor of... Paul, but he's thinking back. He says, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers and night, he is thinking about what God has done throughout the history of his people and potentially even his immediate ancestors. But now as he's looking at those who are younger than him that he is passing the baton to, he is looking and remembering what God has done Considering his own place before the Lord with a clear conscience, he has evaluated his heart and state before the Lord. And he is in a time of thanksgiving in praise for God for what he has done. And he is also including Timothy in that continuance of the ministry of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Going all the way back and going all the way to the present. I want to stop here a little bit and think about that for ourselves, that as you may write that letter, you would hopefully be sober to the point where you will remember what the Lord has blessed you with, namely your own salvation, because if you were at a place of imminent death, you would be thinking, am I in a place that I am right with God? Well, most good Baptist sermons would say at the very end of their sermon, Are you right with God? Right off the bat, we have an altar call of sense of saying, I'm at a place where I am clear in my conscience before the Lord, but I ask you, adults and children. Now, you might be thinking, Well, Charles has been with a lot of Baptists. Here he goes. I'm just trying to stick with the text. If you had that moment where your life was about to end, could you with a clear conscience feel that you are at peace with the Lord? As you think about your past, you have to think that when you think about Thanksgiving in the past, you will likely encounter things in your past that you may not want to remember and that you may not want the Lord to remember as you will have to go face to face with Him. Can you say in a clear conscience that you hold to the steadfast promise that is proclaimed and accomplished through Jesus Christ? Have you come to Him with repentance and faith? Do you, you know that those things in the past will be put to the ends of the world as far as the east is from the west from the Lord's judgment when that day comes. He remembers what God has done in his life and what he is doing, and he says, I remember your tears, Timothy. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. What a beautiful sentence That as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Now, those tears are likely tears of sadness because we see in the context of this passage, in the sharing of suffering, he knows that Timothy cares because he knows that Timothy shares in his suffering. He's been side by side with Timothy, even as he has written letters to other churches. You will see in the beginning of the introduction of other letters where it says Paul and Timothy or Savelius or other people. He's had other people with him as he is writing these letters and he is carrying the burden of their sin and the burden of their need for salvation and the burden of their need of enlightenment by the Word of God and the Spirit, he, they have experienced that and they've seen Paul in likely times of anguish and in prayer and in pleading before God for their salvation. He has seen Timothy suffer with tears and that brought him joy. That communion and that union in Jesus Christ brings him joy. When we get these prayer requests here in, on our email li- loop, I'm so thankful for the ones who who give responses back to me that they're praying and, and then often they'll put in there that they they're they're in pain for one another as they see the suffering of a child or an individual and the suffering for us as they know that our family recently going through COVID, it was was such a joy to know that people were suffering with us in that moment but brothers and sisters do we carry the burdens of one another in our suffering and struggles with sin Does it burden us when we know that one of our brothers and sisters is maybe captive to sin? Does it burden us, and do we suffer in prayer and in longing before the Lord, or do we just have scorn and maybe judgment that I can't believe they are doing this, or I can't believe they said this, or I can't believe they did this to me? Are we brought to tears for their struggle? And are we brought to tears when they suffer for their wrongdoing? And then are we brought to suffering and tears for their good doing, for their obedience? Do we have the kind of relationship and intimacy that Paul and Timothy have where we are communicating with one another our mutual struggle in the faith and being obedient And proclaiming the gospel and trying to encourage lost ones or weak ones to grasp more tightly to Jesus Christ. Is that a part of our conversations too? Are they not preeminent in our conversations or are they rare and few and far between? Often I'm afraid that our prayer requests can be like talking about the weather. Not that it's the same and that we don't take them serious when we suffer physically with one another, but are we brought to a soberness by understanding one another's daily struggles? Now that's a two-way street because you have to have people who are vulnerable to share their struggle. And then we have to have people who are in a... Spirit of wanting to hear those struggles and to carry them in prayer with one another, we should long to have this kind of love, much as we would think that if we were in a marriage that was not at peace with one another and we would read the words of Tabimer to his wife and we wonder if we were in this place of division, what we would say. Maybe we would be that way with each other as we came face to face with the reality of our death. Would we be like, you know, I have not shown love to you, the bride of Christ. I have not prayed for you. I, have not, I, I don't know where you are in your walk with the Lord. I don't know if you are in a place of good conscience. And Lord, I don't know because of that if I am in a place of a clear conscience before the Lord. What would we say in those places? And should we not be longing to be in a place for those who are in our jurisdiction of ministry and life to this day, that we would be intimate enough to know what burdens to bring before the Lord in this walk with each other, that we too could say that as we've shared in these sufferings, because Jesus says in his word that it's one thing to suffer for wrongdoing, but it's another to suffer for the sake of the gospel. That's the kind of suffering they're sharing here. It's not just, oh man, I, I'm so glad I remember you because when that shipwreck happened and or this thorn in my side, you've been there for me, all that. He's thinking, he's clearly got in his mind. I'm not saying he's removed from those things fully. I'm just saying that the centerpiece is this sharing in the suffering for the gospel that we see mentioned in the last verse of what I've read in verse eight. And then he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois in your mother Eunice, And now I am sure dwells in you as well. Anyone who tells you that Paul had an oppressive view toward women, you need to just remember this verse. He goes back. This is serious talk. He's going back and he is recognizing these women and the work of these women in Timothy's life as being foundational in the discipleship of Timothy. Anyone who wants to minimize the important work of mothers training their children or grandmothers training their grandchildren in the gospel, point to this verse. I mean, just take your cues from the lies of the culture today who want to tell you that it, it is a low position, an insignificant position, that it's not really, it's actually an oppressive place to put women in a place where they're having to be stuck at home with their children and discipling them. that unless you are doing the work exactly like the men, in the precise positions and roles, then you are being held back. These women were there before Paul was. These women were teaching and preaching before these children, proclaiming the gospel, showing as a display in their own life to Timothy, in some way holding on to the promises of God. These are warriors for the faith, these are not insignificant roles. So where, what role do you have in your life right now? Surely Lois and Eunice had no idea when they were training Timothy and encouraging Timothy and loving Timothy and being an example to Timothy. What kind of impact Timothy would have to 2,000 years of the church and his ministry and the furthering of the gospel, carrying the baton that Paul held on throughout the world, and to today that we are able to benefit, that he would be one sitting beside Paul and writing these letters that have saved millions of people from hell. Don't let whatever place that you're in, from your family covenant connections to your work connections to this church connection, to the bypasser that you have just a glimmer of a moment to speak to, that is your opportunity and moment to carry that portion of that same baton on into the ministry. You have no idea what kind of impact that you're going to have. I got to hear Paul Washer this week for the first time, and I just heard clips of him before and heard a full sermon from him and I didn't know a lot about Paul Washer. I knew a lot of, especially my evangelistic friends that like to go out on the street. They, there's just something about Paul Washer's fervor that they loved. And so after hearing his sermon at the close of Friday's um, collection of sermons, it was, the, it was the final sermon for me to hear for the whole conference. And it was the most convicting and one of the most powerful sermons I've ever heard. And he, he made it very clear, even though it was for everyone there, that he was aiming it at the preachers and pastors. There, there was one time as I was looking at the screen, he looked like he was looking at me, and I looked up to the main podium. and I was just like, because he said something that was just precisely. It was one of those moments where I was like, oh, and he, surely, I mean, there's seven thousand of us here. Is he looking at me? <laughs> He, like, he looked right at the camera in a way and the angle. Like all the other angles didn't work. It just seemed like that one screen was looking right at me. And I started researching him a little bit, and I found out that he had created a bit of a drama early in the 2000s, around 2004 or six. And he was speaking at a youth conference, and it was he was the third speaker. And he was appalled by some of the things that was going on, and it provoked him throughout the night before he spoke to be in prayer. And he was just burden for their souls this was a christian youth conference and so most of them were acting as if they were christians in their proclamation but acting like they were of the world and he preaches this sermon that is powerful that at the end of the sermon people applauded. and he said wait i'm not i'm not here to get your amens and your applaud i'm talking to you i'm talking to you i believe that many and most of you are likely not going to be in heaven A hundred years from now. And he was accused of being judgmental. He did said likely. He wasn't pointing to individual people. He was just looking at the fruits of the activity that was going on there. And he had a very minimal response. Unlike the comedian that spoke earlier on, where people came down laughing to make proclamations of faith and dedication and not carrying the weight of their own burden of sin. It seemed like nothing happened. It was just a glimmer and gone. It was considered to be one of the most powerful sermons in the world. and It seemed like nothing was, nothing was responded to. But little did he know, in four years, someone would find a clip of that and they would put it on YouTube and it became a, I forgot the word for it, it was just like a virus. It went everywhere. Everyone saw this sermon and people started writing him in droves saying, I've come to the Lord from watching this sermon. You know, context doesn't always seem like you're doing anything. People, he even mentioned in the sermon on Friday night that the men that had the biggest influence on, on, on the gospel, nobody knows who those men are. They don't have the same name he has in the public he and other ministers that, have, that get a lot of recognition. It doesn't matter. Here we do have the recognition of Lois and Eunice. But what jurisdiction of ministry have you been given? And if a letter were to be written, if there was someone who could write a letter to you and point out to you the things that they have seen in you, who are those people You may never get a letter like that, but don't underestimate the power of your jurisdiction of ministry. Just this morning, hearing someone have a conversation with someone that is suffering and how they're encouraging them to hold on to faithfulness. We, have, we do not know from sometimes day to day. We often do know through our families and through the people that we have in our lives regularly what kind of influence we have. But if we would act as if every day would be our last to some degree, would we proclaim to them the gospel of Jesus Christ? He says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This would be the points of his sermon, I think, to Paul here, that to hold on to the power and the love of Jesus Christ and to respond with self-control. He is pointing to Timothy, his particular calling, that was given through on the laying on of hands, his hands. He mentions this in 1 Timothy, also to not to take lightly his calling, because surely in people's callings, we often, if we are faced with the reality of our weakness and sin, we would think, I'm not up for that calling. I... It's kind of an accident that I'm in this particular place. Whether it be when you think about who you may be married to, you may be, I'm not really up for the task of being a very good husband or a very good wife. I'm, I'm kind of weak at this. Eric, you'll be faced with that. Where you get married soon, he, by the way, Eric just got engaged this past week. And he will be hopefully getting married at the turn of the year. There will be times, and Eric, as any of you married people know, that you're like, I I can't do this. Parents, surely, holy cow, I can't do this. Brothers and sisters, when I drove down to Atlanta, I was like, "I, I, I don't know if I can do this. What's it going to be like? Am I going to be so full of fear of having these people pick apart my work You know, to actually hear what you guys may think all the time? <laughs> and to have men surround me who are pastors to go through that and to show what kind of fraud I am? Lord, I don't know if I can do this. We can be racked with fear when we look at our inability to, And that is what Paul is telling Timothy, don't look at your inability. Look at your calling that is given by the authority of God. Think about the power in which you are being provoked. It is the power of God. Think and hold to the word of God, for it is the power of God. It is the power of God that rose Jesus from the grave ascended him in heaven. It is the power of Jesus Christ and the spirit that equips us for this ministry. We are exactly right. We are not up for the calling and task. The reason why Paul is pointing this out to Timothy is he knows that there's going to be fear and he's saying that we're not of a spirit of fear, but of power. Remember the love, the love of Jesus Christ to love us, to give us this power, the love that we have with one another, as we share in this faith, in this common calling, and in our suffering—even the suffering of our fear—together. What it was great to hear, just a short, short little quivet of a, of a statement from Damon when he when I said it's just it's stupid, Damon, the things that I think. He said, like, "Man, we're all there. We're all there." That goes through all of our minds. You're not alone in the sharing of the suffering. We are with you there and in self-control. This is where it's hard for us. This is the hardest place, I think, for us in our faithfulness. Throughout the whole book of 2 Timothy, he is admonishing Timothy, to hold on to the true and right doctrine of the word. And he gives all these examples. He does a lot as he closes in 1 Timothy 6, and he shows statement after statement of how this is what's going to happen when you abandon the truth. You will go off into ungodliness. You will cause other people to lose their faith and to be weakened in faith. Have the discipline to be holding on to that power of God. It's not some kind of discipline to get the approval of God. It's saying the power of Jesus Christ that saved you and gives us this life, continue to hold on to that power in your preaching. Preach the word in season and out of season. Stick with the word of God. And do not be provoked by the fear of the world, And by the things that they bring before us. There was the governor of New York telling people that in Jesus' name, get vaccinated. (laughs) To use Jesus' name to try to provoke people to be in submission to the government. I would not have wanted to be standing close to her. But how often do we do that, that we take all the things that we hear that are societal morality or virtue signals and we interweave them into the name of God. That is ultimately what the people here were doing in this context. They were taking things, the twisting of God's word and they were preaching that in the name of God and they were causing people to be shipwrecked in faith and to be caught up in things that were wrong. Well, if you're in the Word of God and and you are relying on the power of God, that is our only protection and hope that we have from such lies that are out there. And the moment and context of this particular letter is just like now. People don't want to hear the Word of God. The reason why people are in droves going to this conference down here is because most of the pulpits out there And maybe even at times, I have held back. I've held back from proclaiming the truth to you out of fear. Fear of the world, fear of losing members, fearing of not bringing it in. Satan will put so many things in front of us to keep us from preaching the truth of Jesus Christ. We'll do the same thing before our children. we are like, well, I don't know. You know. I don't want them to be mad at me. You need to be worried about whether or not the Lord's wrath is going to be upon them. Not whether or not you're going, they're going to be mad at you. Now, I'm not saying that we need to be harsh and cruel. Paul deals with that in this letter. He's very, very adamant to Timothy of going into this with gentleness. That's why you have... Right smack dab in the middle of that introduction, grace and mercy and peace. Remembering the mercy of God and the gentleness of God toward us. Yet while sinners, Christ died for us. And lastly, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. I've already preempted that with the conversation about fear. We should not be afraid of the power that saves us. It seems crazy. It seems stupid to even say that. Why would I even with the audacity ever want to be in this pulpit and try to provoke you all in anything other than the power of that word of God? Fear. Demonic lies. Lies being put into my head. The same kind of fear that keeps us from praying for one another with diligence. Prayer is very heavy in this. He's talking throughout this whole introduction about what he's doing. when he, He's recalling all these things while he's in the middle of prayer before God. Do we believe that prayer will have any kind of effect? Do we believe that intercessory prayer will tap into the power of the intercessory proclamations of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Do we believe that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God the Father right now for us? Do we even think about that day by day? I often sometimes think when I'm working, like, you know what, I haven't even thought about my family in a while. I've been busy with work. Wonder what they're doing. Well, how often do we ever stop and just think about what Jesus is doing for us in the very moment of our life? Well, if you knew what he was doing, that he is at the right hand of God the Father intercessing for us, Maybe if we were mindful of that, we would be brought to a place of intercessory prayer for one another. That we would share in the sufferings. That we would actually think that it is necessary for us to plead to our Savior for one another. That I need to be praying for David. I need to be praying for Moses. I need to be praying for Abigail and Lydia. Right now, I need to be praying for them that the power of the gospel will be manifested in their life. Because that's what Jesus is doing. And that's what he calls us to do, to share in that suffering with one another. And when we don't, when we don't think about that, when we're not in prayer for one another, and when we're not proclaiming the word of God to each other, we're acting like we're ashamed. Because we're full of fear. We're full of fear that something is going to happen in our earthly endeavors that will come to an end of those endeavors. It is the power of God, the gospel by the power of God that saves us. This letter is full of that. I encourage you to go and read that further, to take all of these and and dwell on them and chew on these things for the sake of your own soul and for our souls. I encourage you to do this. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for...